What worries me the most is that we're going to miss the next emerging disease, that we're going to suddenly find a SARS virus that moves from one part of the planet to another, wiping out people as it moves along. That was Peter Daszak in this kind of drop, uh, a jaw-dropping moment on Sunday night on 60 Minutes. Uh, what made it remarkable was that there was a clip from 2003, February 2003. Uh, he's essentially, uh, no, 2004, I'm sorry. Uh, but he's essentially expressing his fears uh, about what could happen, and now it essentially has. This is all in the context of bats, and Peter Dajak, uh, president of EcoHealth Alliance. So today we're going to be talking about bats, uh, about why, in fact, they can be vectors for this kind of disease, but also why, in fact, they play an incredibly important role in the ecosystem. Because the British biologist J.B.S. Haldane, uh, when asked what his studies had taught him about the mind of God, said, he is inordinately fond of beetles. I do a really great J.B.S. Haldane. Everybody tells me so. Uh, but the Almighty also likes bats. Uh, bats are about 20% of the mammalian population, and they're a vital, bug-eating, pollinating, seed-pooping part of the ecosystem. But there's some bad news, too. Bats harbor highly pathogenic viruses like Ebola, Marburg, Hendra, Nipah, SARS, COVID, uh, and they don't show clinical signs of these diseases. About 500 coronaviruses, do, which do not currently infect humans, have been found in the bats of China. And virologists believe that that is just the tip of the bat wing. So today on the show, how do we strike a balance? We don't want bats to go away. On the other hand, some of them are disease vectors. Most of them aren't. There are actually 1,400 species of bat, and some of them haven't shared a common ancestor for over 50 million years. That's like when humans and howler monkeys forked off in different directions. So there's a lot of bats that don't have any connection to a lot of other bats is the point. Anyway, I'll start to stop talking about bats so we can get uh, Jonathan Epstein to do it instead. Uh, a veterinarian, disease ecologist, and the vice president for science and outreach at EcoHealth Alliance, uh, same place as uh, the quote that you heard from. At the beginning, his work has been published in Science, Nature, and Emerging Infectious Diseases, uh, among others. So, Jonathan, and Epstein. Welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, better than I could possibly do, uh, maybe you can just explain what the relationship is uh, between bats, to, to what, whatever extent it's actually fully known, which I guess it's not, between bats and SARS-CoV-2, otherwise known as COVID-19. Yeah. It's funny, uh, you know, hearing that clip uh, was a real throwback because I'd forgotten about it myself, but I was with him um, filming that piece on 60 Minutes at the time. We were studying a different bat-borne virus called Nipah virus and, and still thinking about the potential for new and different viruses to emerge. And, and talking about SARS at the time, we were much closer to the original SARS outbreak uh, back in 2004 and thinking heavily about that. So um, it, it's amazing what an evergreen topic it's become. Um, but th it brings us to really what we do know about the current outbreak and the virus causing it, which has been called SARS coronavirus 2 or SARS CoV 2. And it's actually really because of the original. SARS outbreak, um, which launched the, the whole line of scientific research into where that virus came from, uh, we were able to link that back to a type of bat called a horseshoe bat, which is common not only in southern China where SARS emerged, but this group of bats is found across Asia and all the way into Eastern Europe. So it's a really abundant and widespread family of bats. And similarly, we found over the last 15 years in the course of doing 
research collaboratively with our partners at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, and other institutes, we've been able to find uh, a whole host of different SARS-related coronaviruses, which means, genetically speaking, on a family tree, coronaviruses that are very close to the original SARS coronavirus. And it turns out that SARS-CoV-2, although in genetic terms, is not so close, uh, it's about 80% similar, but it appears to be carried by the same bats that would carry SARS and all these other related viruses. And the reason we know that is that the closest known relative to SARS-CoV-2 was a virus we found in bats in Yunnan province that's 96% identical to the virus causing COVID-19. So across its entire genome, it, it's the closest known relative, and it just reinforces the idea that this whole group of viruses originates in horseshoe bats. So the, the one of the terms of art here is spillover. And, and one of the questions is, in this case, would this virus have spilled over directly from bats to humans, or, or was there an intermediary species? Uh, what do we know about that? That remains one of the, the biggest black boxes in this whole story of COVID-19. There's a lot of evidence and we have a lot of confidence that this virus ultimately originates in bats. And we know that it's potentially capable of directly infecting people from bats. But what we don't know right now is what other animals may have been involved in the route that it took from bats to people. And there's a lot of scientists, a lot of colleagues, uh, myself included, who feel that there probably were other animals involved along the way, because the virus that I just mentioned, the one that's 96% similar, is probably not likely the the next you know closest step to this one in other words it's probably not the same virus that became SARS-CoV-2 there are probably many other strains genetically speaking in between that and this and so the one there may be one even more closely related that's in bats and probably it made its way through other intermediate hosts other mammals that could be part of the wildlife trade so that that's one part of the discussion is that uh, in this area of China there are uh, there's a a robust trade in wild animals. And it's possible either that uh, a bat virus got into other animals that were being bred on farms to supply the live animal markets, or perhaps it spilled over in the wild, or perhaps it spilled over directly into people. And these are all unknowns that require more research. This whole idea of bats themselves being these carriers of pathogens, but they seem to have these incredible immune systems where they don't get the disease and they seem also to be able to suppress their own reactions to the disease. Uh, so many of the people who get sick from COVID-19, the human beings, the big problem is the immune system response to it. Uh, they seem to have, be able to hold everything in, in a kind of dynamic tension. What I was starting to say was that in your introduction, I think you brought up something really important, is that bats represent an incredibly diverse group of mammals with more than 1,400 species. And you know, biologists have long actually understood that bats were pretty unique in other respects. They uh, were incredibly long-lived compared to other animals their size. Uh, there's been an understanding that they're actually resistant to developing cancers. Um, and But very little has been understood about their immune system and their physiology to be able to say uh, up until recently that, yeah, bats are really different from other mammals. And in fact, there have been some really important lines of recent research trying to answer the question you just posed. Why does it seem that bats are able to uh, be infected with viruses that cause so much disease, both in people and other animals, when they get into them? And part of what we're learning is that bats 
uh, over evolutionary time, and, and this is based on a few different species of bats that have been studied genetically, they seem to have lost the genes that other mammals have, including people, that trigger the inflammatory process. Now, inflammation is an important part of our own body's response to infection. It's why we get a fever. It's how we um, mobilize our white cells and start to fight infection from viruses and bacteria. And it can be a very damaging process at the cellular level. And the hypothesis as to why bats may have lost this ability has to do with the fact that they're the only flying mammal, the only mammal with powered flight. And the act of flying is so physiologically demanding and actually damaging also at the cellular level that by damping down inflammation, this was a way to cope with the potential damage that would be caused from having to fly during hunting and migration and, and all the normal activities that bats do overnight and even in the day. And so that's one aspect of why it's thought they can tolerate viral infection better without becoming sick or without showing apparent signs of disease. And we're learning other things too. You know, there are multiple parts of the immune system and there's a part of the immune system, not only that triggers inflammation, but responds directly to infection with viruses. And some bats have a, um, a, an exaggerated response to that. So it's thought that bats are able to either clear infection more effectively without inflammation or that they can tolerate infection in a better way. And we're still learning a lot about this, but this is some early information coming out of studies. And it, this is really important because it may ultimately help people understand how better co to cope with viral infections. Right. And so I, th I think it's important to emphasize the obvious, which is that bats just want to go about their business being bats. They don't have any real interest in human beings or in causing any problems for us. But I assume it's because of us and because of the way that we've expanded upon the earth and the way that we've encroached on habitats that we are in closer contact with bats who can, through no fault of their own, make us sick. Oh, listen, if there's nothing else that I would want people to take away from this conversation and from understanding how pandemics like COVID happened, it's that we, people, are the biggest cause of it, the number one driver, for the reasons you just mentioned. We are doing things on a global scale that change the environment around us and influence the way that we come into contact with wildlife, including bats, and that we bring our domestic animals into contact. And all these different ways, whether it's deforestation or expanding farming systems into natural environments where there's little barrier between livestock and wildlife, a lot of times spillover is quite accidental. It might be contamination of food with um, feces or urine from an animal that, that happens to be infected with a virus, and that's how the virus gets into domestic animals or people. It might be bushmeat hunting or the act of butchering an animal where our hands get contaminated with blood or other bodily fluids, and then we infect ourselves. And that's certainly the case in the live animal markets where SARS emerged and potentially here with COVID-19. So yes, this happens because of things we're doing to change the way we interact with nature. This is not the bat's fault. And in fact, the more we learn about bats and the viruses they carry, the better we'll be able to change human behavior to reduce the risk of spillover and, in fact, live in a better way with bats and other wildlife. Right. I, I was That it leads to exactly what I wanted to ask you about. So, you know, in 2015, your group, EcoHealth Alliance, did a study of four Chinese villages that were near bat caves and found that 3% of the human villagers had antibodies suggesting some kind of prior SARS-like coronavirus. These would have been coronaviruses that didn't really go anywhere or do anything. But, you know, that raises a question, which is, would it make sense 
sooner rather than later to do things that would limit that kind of contact. There are parts of the world where people go and collect bat guano for fertilizer. There are people, there are places in the world where the cave where the bats are is where you go to get out of the rain. I mean, would it make sense maybe even just to have laws saying don't do stuff like that, don't go near the bats? Yeah, you're you're bringing up a really important finding, and that is that we have evidence that people get exposed to these viruses not just through the wildlife trade or live animal market, but even locally at the community level, if they're hunting and eating bats locally or entering into caves for other reasons where they might be exposed to bat guano. And we know that coronaviruses in particular are shed in, in bat feces. And so, yeah, we, we should have been making changes along those lines years ago. We've known enough for a long time to do this, but clearly the COVID-19 pandemic is is underscoring the urgent need to do better at examining our own behavior. And, and legislation is important, but it can't be the only thing because we all know that you just can't tell someone not to do something that's risky and expect they'll stop doing it. That's never worked for anybody. And so legislation, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to couple that with a real sociologic approach, working with local scientists, particularly social scientists, to understand what the motivating factors are for a particular culture in a particular region to uh, seek contact with animals, whether it's hunting or whether it's harvesting guano, as you say. And that's where we're start going to start to understand enough to develop interventions that will modify or change behavior and reduce the risk of exposure. And that'll be beneficial for bats and other wildlife too. Right. I mean, right now, because people respond in very panicky and extreme ways, uh, particularly to something as massive and all-encompassing as a global pandemic. You do have people who are right now burning bat roosts and stuff like that. I mean, it's clear we don't want to do that. And in fact, you know, in, in this incredible panoply of 1,400 different species of bat, there are bats who play uh, indispensable roles in ecosystems. We can't probably live the way we do without bats. Yeah, it's important for people to realize how essential bats are to our own well-being in terms of pest control. They eat literally tons of insects that damage our agricultural crops. They eat mosquitoes. They also, fruit bats will, you know, pollinate trees and spread seeds. They're responsible for supporting the rainforest globally. So we do need bats in our world and we need them in our lives. And the more, the sooner we can understand, I think, you know, as a population, that it's our actions that are leading to spillover and, and by no fault of the bats, then we'll hopefully be able to reduce this kind of knee-jerk reaction to the idea that exterminating bats is going to be a solution because it's certainly not. And in fact, there are scientific studies that are shown in cases where people have tried to exterminate bats to suppress the disease it's actually increased transmission as other bats move into that vacant habitat that's been, uh, you know, where bats have been removed. And so it can actually put people at greater risk to try to remove bats from an environment. So, uh, Jonathan Epstein, is there anything else we should be learning from the experience that we're having now? We don't want to learn the wrong lessons. I think we just covered those. Is there anything else we should be learning to help us plan and invest and be ready? Uh, Because just as that clip that we played at the beginning of the show suggested, this is not our last rodeo either. We're going to be facing these kinds of threats in the future. Absolutely. This this epidemic was 
predictable and predicted, and it was also, more importantly, preventable. And so is the next one, and so will, will the future ones. Now, what we have to do is really invest. We have to commit globally to investing in strengthening systems in parts of the world that are particularly vulnerable to emerging viruses. That means helping to create a workforce locally that is able to do surveillance in animals and people and recognize spillover events and outbreaks at an early stage to help contain them more effectively sooner. And also for laboratories in those countries to be able to identify new viruses we might not have seen before so that we can get a better handle on them. Because it's also important to recognize Drugs and vaccines are part of our toolbox. They're important, but they happen after people have already gotten sick and died. We really want to prevent outbreaks from happening in the first place by understanding where the vulnerable points are, the high-risk interfaces around the world, and we do understand that, and focusing energy there at preventing spillover from happening. Jonathan Epstein, thank you so much. Sorry about the technical problems. Jonathan Epstein is a veterinarian, disease ecologist, and vice president for science and outreach at EcoHealth Alliance. His work has been published in Science, Nature, and Emerging Infectious Diseases, among others. Thank you for sharing so much knowledge right now. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with an ecologist, wildlife photographer, kind of legendary bat conservationist, Merlin Tuttle. And we're back. <laughs> this is a technically challenging day, but we're going we're gonna to be fine here. So uh, joining us now uh, is Merlin Tuttle, an ecologist, wildlife photographer, bat conservationist, the founder of Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation and a research fellow at the University of Texas. But maybe to put him uh, in the perspective of modern pop culture, why don't we hear him in 1984 on Late Night with David Letterman? Let me point out before I put this guy away that left alone, this fellow can catch 500 to 900 insects in an hour at night, mm -hmm. largely mosquitoes. And so he's, he's very, very beneficial. Uh, can they be trained, these animals? Yes. Uh -huh. to do Even what? a little one like this can, what can be trained. What can you train to... that one to do? Oh, come on, Carl. If you... Come on call, you can right. get the thing to fly to you? That's right. Why on earth would you want to do that? All right, so Merlin Tuttle, welcome to our show. Uh, and um, you've, I think, heard some of our somewhat disjointed conversation with Jonathan Epstein. You come at this from a different perspective, although I would assume you and Jonathan both have the goal uh, of making sure that most bats get to do what bats do. Tell us how you see this, this whole dynamic. Well, good afternoon, Colin. Uh, I certainly agree with Jonathan that bats are indispensably valuable. And I agree that we humans have made most of our own problems. Uh, <clears throat> from my standpoint, however, I work with bats, have been working with bats for 60 years. And in all that time, I have yet to meet an aggressive bat. I have yet to contract a disease from a bat. Like veterinarians, I'm protected with rabies vaccination against being bitten by an unfamiliar animal that I'm handling. But, you know, bats, bats only bite people when handled. And when just left alone, it's exceedingly rare for a human to contract any kind of a disease from a bat. Here in Austin, where I live, years ago, decades ago, 
people were told that most of the free tail bats moving into a downtown bridge were rabid and dangerous. People were signing petitions to have them eradicated out of fear. But I pointed out that if we just didn't try to handle the bats, there was nothing to worry about. And in fact, managed to convince enough people that we saved the bats from eradication. And today we have a million and a half bats living in the center of a major city. Millions of people come from all over the world to view their spectacular emergences. And in more than 30 years of doing this, we have yet to have a single person contract any disease or be in any way harmed by one of these bats. They simply eat 10 tons roughly of crop and yard pests nightly and bring in millions of tourist dollars. So explain why you've been drawn to them. You've essentially devoted your life to bats. What is it about them that speaks to you? Well, I originally became fascinated by bats simply because there was so little known about them. And one of the first things I discovered was that the existing books of the day that said that the species that lived near my home didn't migrate and lived in one cave year round were wrong that these bats did migrate. They not only migrate, but they migrated north for the winter, which was a big shock to anybody who is familiar with traditional migration. And, uh, you know, just the ability to explore a, an area that was so poorly understood and yet so vitally important uh, captivated me. Just trying to um, make sure that the audience understood what you meant by adopt orphans. Well, mother mother of one bat gets killed or something, he doesn't come back, and another mother may uh, adopt the uh, young one that now doesn't have a mother. So, um, you know, just to sort of double down on some of the things that we were saying to Jonathan. Um, I mean, it seems as though that we're a bigger danger to bats than bats are to us most of the time. I mean, I assume climate change is just wreaking havoc on bat colonies and bat populations. Climate change is almost insignificant compared to what we do directly out of just fear of the unknown. And, you know, one of the big points I would make is that, uh, you know, a recent study done on educated people in China following the COVID outbreak showed that if you simply told people about the values of bats and how essential they were to ecosystem health and even economies, that didn't have nearly as much effect on people's willingness to conserve bats as just simply point out how rare it is for a human to ever contract a disease from a bat and how easy it is to avoid that problem. You know, in, in my entire 60 years of studying bats, I have never contracted bat disease, never been protected against any of the so-called emerging diseases that many of them have probably been around for a very long time and are just now being discovered because of advances in technology and mobility of people. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, the first thing I do when I want somebody to get over killing bats and, and conserve them is remove the fear factor. And <clears throat> what, 
what I fear most is, is when scientists speculate about data beyond what they actually know. And there's been rampant speculation about what bats might do instead of what we know they do do. Uh, we know that they're incredibly beneficial. Uh, you know, in most of the COVID uh, reporting that I've seen recently, we, for example, hear that uh, of all things, Ebola came from bats. And I've even heard it claimed that a bat could fly overhead and, and defecate on you and give you Ebola. That is the wildest of speculation. It's kind of on a par with, if I were to tell you that we had to be very careful because tomorrow a spacecraft could fall and, and kill us in our homes, we need to reinforce the roof to protect ourselves, you'd laugh me out of town. Everybody knows that it's such a remote unlikelihood that it's not worth our consideration. But if we say that you might get some terrible disease from a bat, that's double scary because first of all, we you know we fear most what we understand least. We don't understand bats very well. We they're out there at night doing strange things erratically that we don't comprehend a lot of times. And just think of viruses. I've been told that we have more viruses in our human bodies than we have cells. Most of the world's viruses are non-threatening, maybe even essential to our survival, but we only hear about the few that get into big trouble. And this is the case with bats. We only hear about the occasional and often just speculate association with bats. And one of my complaints has nothing to do with good solid research, but a lot to do with speculating beyond the limits of what we know research-wise. For example, you know, in nearly everything I read, I hear that Ebola came from bats, and yet nobody knows where Ebola is coming from. There's, in fact, strong evidence that it doesn't come from bats. Uh, it was predicted originally that because bats travel long distances and could fly and even migrate, that they were probably spreading Ebola. But then it was found that each species of Ebola was re restricted to a given river valley drainage system and a flying mammal that wasn't restricted that way would be an unlikely carrier. Another well, Merlin Tuttle, uh, we have to stop there. I, I've screwed up our whole schedule today by having technical problems. Merlin Tuttle is an ecologist, wildlife photographer, and bat conservationist, founder of Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation and research fellow at the University of Texas. So we're going to make a, a transition here. We're going to basically talk about another pretty bad idea that involved human beings and bats. And the bad idea came from the human beings, not from the bats. So joining us now is Kara Jaimo, freelance writer. She spent three and a half years as a staff writer at Atlas Obscura uh, and now writes for the New York Times, Grist, Anthropocene Magazine, and elsewhere. So one of our favorite publications is Atlas Obscura. Kara uh, Jaimo, welcome to our show. Uh, and thanks for agreeing to tell us about Project X-Ray. Thank you so much, Colin. I'm happy to be here. So give us a sense of 
Okay, now I've got audio coming in two different play places. So give us a sense of what Project X-Ray was. So Project X-Ray was um, a plan developed during World War II, and the gist of it was basically um, that instead of dropping a regular bomb on the city, you would drop a bomb that was full of bats that were themselves carrying smaller bombs. And the rationale behind this was basically um, regularly you drop a bomb and it has a certain radius, you know, it, it can affect um, the land within a certain distance of where it falls. If you instead drop a bunch of bats carrying bombs, they can go much farther and they can cause destruction on a much wider scale. So, um, so this idea was, well, maybe you should say a little bit about the man who came up with this particular plan. Absolutely. Um, so the visionary behind this plan was named uh, Lytle Adams. He was a dentist from Pennsylvania. Um, and he got the idea, it was kind of like um, a synchrony of experiences and uh, sort of, um, I don't know what you would call it, inspiration. He had traveled recently to New Mexico, and he had been to Carlsbad Caverns, where you can still see thousands of bats kind of fly in and out of the caverns every day. Um, he was really impressed by them, sort of their flying abilities and their secrecy. Um, and he also was really incensed by Pearl Harbor. Uh, so after the Pearl Harbor attack occurred, he uh, took about a month, and he came up with Project X-Ray, and he uh, wrote up a proposal, and he sent it to the White House. And, you know, one might have thought that an idea like this, this proposal of using bats as kind of mini deliverers of mini bombs, it seems like a crackpot idea. And on the other hand, if you're in the middle of something like World War II, maybe just the way we are now, you're kind of desperate for anything that might help. But for some reason, maybe also connected to Adams's friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt, this idea was taken pretty seriously. Tell us how seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Adams did know Eleanor Roosevelt. He had kind of, um, besides being a dentist, spent a lot of time coming up with crazy schemes like this. And um, previously he had invited Eleanor Roosevelt successfully to come up with him in a plane and see a demonstration of his airmail delivery service idea where the plane never actually has to land. Um, so he had, I guess, impressed her enough potentially by that that she maybe put in a good word with him. Um, another possibility is that FDR just happened to, you know, actually pick up his letter and give it a read. Um, but we do know that after President Roosevelt read the proposal, um, he actually sent it through to his head of wartime intelligence, uh, Colonel William Donovan, and he sent along a note that said, this man is not a nut. Like, that's actually a quote from the memo he sent. <laughs> um, basically saying, like, take this guy seriously, see what happens. So the plan here is that you're going to clip a bomb to a bat's chest, load them into trays that were loaded into sort of a bigger bomb and release these over Japanese cities, right? Yeah. So I've described this in the past as kind of like a turducken of bombs. So you have like a big bomb and then bats and then the small bombs. And yeah, the idea, it was pretty tricky to actually figure out how to make it work. Um, but the idea was that each bat will carry a very small, very light bomb. Um, and that bomb is kind of on a time release. So uh, it could be kind of started on a time delay before the bats even leave, you know, wherever they're leaving from. Then the plane holding the bomb 
the bigger bomb. <laughs> yeah, sorry, this is hard to explain. Um, each bat has a tiny bomb. Um, all the bats are kind of put into hibernation mode by being refrigerated, and they're packed into these kind of like egg carton-like trays, and those trays are put in a larger bomb that's loaded into a plane. The plane flies across the ocean, opens the bay doors the same way it would with a regular bomb. The bomb falls out, but the bomb kind of splits open and the bats all wake up because they've warmed up and they fly out and they all go roost in different eaves and attics as bats are wont to do. And then supposedly what they're going to do is nibble through the little string, clipping the tiny bomb to their chest and go out and, you know, hunt for bugs or whatever as they do. And then the time delay tiny bombs will start going off and incinerate whatever buildings that uh, they are inside. Yeah, I, I really like the the idea that the bats were going to be able to get away, that they were going to know to knock <laughs> through this string. Uh, I, that, I mean, there's a lot of things about this whole plan that are pretty quixotic, but that one in particular, the idea that they were not going to be kamikaze bats, they were going to right. live through this, was, was uh, very hopeful. So this actually sort of got into trials, right? They went out and got a bunch of bats and and try to see if that would work? Yeah, so they actually got some pretty big names on it um, to develop the tiny bombs that would actually do the exploding. Um, they uh, called in Dr. Lee Pfizer, um, who actually also invented military napalm to design that tiny bomb, and he worked pretty hard on it. There were some really tricky problems that he had to solve. And then to design the large bomb where the bats were going to be inside, they brought in the Crosby Research Foundation, which is actually um, like a wartime um, manufacturing outfit run by Bing Crosby and his brothers. Um, and they also, yeah, uh, Adams himself and some people from the military went around and they caught a lot of bats and they did trials with um, at least the smaller bombs to sort of see if this would work. And one of the trials, <laughs> the bats actually ended up escaping um, and roosting underneath an airplane hangar, and they blew up the airplane hangar. <laughs> uh, I also understand, although this was not in your article, that some of the bats were able to get letters from their doctors saying they had bone spurs in their wings <laughs> get out of being in these trials. But so it's almost, first of all, this the whole idea anyway was to do the equivalent of firebombing, but using bats, and you have these structures in Japan, which are involved a lot of wood and paper were easy to send up in flames. And it's almost impossible to begin a sentence. Fortunately, we got more interested in the atomic bomb. Uh, but that is essentially why this didn't happen, right? That ultimately the Manhattan Project diverted everybody's energies? Yeah, I think uh, basically the military decided to go all in on that. Um, I've heard that they spent $2 million on the bat bomb project, Project X-Ray, before they ended up throwing in the towel. Um, and actually, Dr. Adams, for his whole life, maintained that the bat bomb would have been a better idea because although it might have caused enough destruction to end the war, it wouldn't have caused as much of a loss of life because people could have escaped the burning buildings. At least that's what he said. So, uh, yeah, I mean, although it's sort of worth noting, and I don't know how much of this penetrated uh, Adams's mind, <laughs> that what was really happening behind the scenes was that, that the firebombing, the conventional firebombing of Japan was uh, was so destructive and so effective that as the as the Americans got closer to using the atomic bomb, and there was some thought that they wanted to do that to demonstrate to, among other people, Stalin that they had this 
kind of ultimate weapon. There were actually memos going back and forth uh, between, uh, I think, MacArthur and Marshall, uh, in which Marshall was uh, cautioning MacArthur to preserve some Japanese cities intact so they'd have something mm. to drop the atomic bomb on. So uh, I, it's not really clear to me that even if the atomic bomb had come, come along, they would have hadn't come along, they would have needed or wanted uh, Adams's uh, bat bombs. But um, I guess the, the, you, you sort of alluded to this, but really kind of to his dying day, uh, Adams thought that this was a good idea. What, what else happened to him? We have to mention the fried chicken vending machine. Oh, yeah. So he never stopped kind of, he was not deterred by the fact that his plan here didn't come to fruition. And he never stopped um, coming up with ideas of this nature, uh, most of which seemed to involve like combining like a more mundane thing with a super technological thing. Um, so he did come up with a uh, prairie seed bombs, which could be used to plant things on the prairie, but from a bomb, uh, via a bomb from overhead and also a fried chicken vending machine, which, I mean, I wish I had one of those in my house. Uh, so, I mean, no. these ideas yeah, are they're... not necessarily the best ideas, but they're <laughs> certainly fun to imagine. Yeah, so he had this one idea of kind of the way that you use the same kind of idea to kind of generate growth uh, in the prairies by by kind of doing with seeds what he was otherwise planning to do with much more destructive elements in Japan. And then this fried chicken vending machine, which probably sounded like another goofy idea then. But but yeah, I mean, I've been reading lately about how there's a, uh, there was a piece in the Times about how uh, there's some kind of meat market or butcher uh, in, I think, the area north of New York City, where they're now doing meat vending machines because people want to buy meat, but they don't want to go to the supermarket. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes you just have to wait a really, really long time before your idea turns out to be a good one. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Kara Jaimo. Uh, the article appeared uh, in, it was called The Almost Perfect World War II Plan to Bond Japan with Bats. Uh, it appeared in Atlas Obscura. Uh, and thanks to everybody who helped out today during a very, 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 very rocky day. Especially thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who planned this episode. She worked really hard on it, and look what happened. Uh, and thanks to Kat Pastor, who kept a cool head during all of this craziness. We will be back on Friday.